up? How's everybody doing tonight? Good? Well, you'll have to be good because this is a pre-recorded podcast and my like two listeners and that's being generous can't respond. Anyway, let's get this show on the road. You are listening to Overanalyzing the Podcast with your host and amazing, fantastical, wonderful human being, Hannah Petrus. In this episode of Overanalyzing Anime, we will discuss the themes and symbolisms within the anime. Get ready for this one, we'll be here all week. Danjan ni dea o matomero no wa matikateru daruka. Or because we all like to breathe, do it with me now. We're known as Danmachi. Or in English, because that title is iconic. And also, one question. Why are overly long titles such a fad in Japan right now? Is it wrong to pick up girls in a dungeon? That's what we're going to find out. Just kidding. We're not going into that moral dilemma there. What's it about? The city of Arario is the center of the world due to the Tower of Babel, the behemoth building designed to contain the fount of Arario's wealth, the dungeon. Beneath Babel's stone walls, the labyrinth of the dungeon births monsters from its depths, made of magic stones that can be harvested to craft items, as well as be exchanged for the world's currency. The brave souls that traverse the dungeon's belly in order to pave a new frontier for humanity and to collect these magic stones by killing monsters are called adventurers. Adventurers gain their power from the gods, who departed from heaven to the lower worlds in search of entertainment like a bunch of thrill-seekers, choosing to forgo their heavenly powers to enjoy the perils of the earthly realm to its fullest. The gods compete with one another to see which of their adventures, their children, as they call them. Uh, I don't think I like that title, considering how Loki is with some of her female children. Fight under the banner of the god who unlocked their fauna, their status, which includes ability scores, their level, and special skills. It's the strongest, and uh, compare the achievements and glory that can bring them with all the possibility of death. I guess it'd be better to say revel. Yeah. The story follows one Belle Cornell, a 14-year-old boy who dreams of becoming a hero like the ones in the fairy tales that his grandfather read to him before he, you know, bit the dust. Yeah, this is another anime where there is no parental figure, technically. I don't consider Hesia a parental figure to Belle. That'd be weird. A lot of this is weird if you really think about it. But in an oversaturation of anime tropes, it turns out that Belle's grandfather is alive! Yay! Who would have thunk it? Never could have figured that out. And is in fact the god Zeus, who used to be the head of the most powerful familia in Arario next to his wife Hera. But after the familia was all killed by the one-eyed black dragon, Zeus was exiled, and he decided to become a farmer in the countryside and raise Bell, who is the son of one of his familia members. His grandfather used to read Bell these handmade storybooks of heroes, and that made him want to become a hero after his grandfather quote-unquote died. And reading about these heroes also instilled the idea to Bell having a chance encounter with a girl in the dungeon, preferably by saving her from a vicious monster, causing her to fall in love with his heroic figure. Oh, swoon! But Belle 
learns that he's out of his depth. A minotaur escapes from the lower floors and Belle is cornered, prepared for the end. It is in that moment that in the scenario that Belle often daydreamed about, the roles are reversed, and it is Belle who is the damsel in distress in need of rescuing. Wow, plot twist. The One Sword Princess Eyes Wallenstein, first class adventure, one of the few level fives that exist in the whole world, and the holder of the world record for leveling up to level two from level one in the shortest amount of time, spares him from death and slaughters the beast. Belle is instantly smitten, but discovers that until he becomes strong enough, he will never stand a chance at being at her side. This is the story of how Belle became a hero of legends. Inspiration. One of the most prominent and obvious inspirations that Don Machi takes from is obviously role-playing games or RPGs. This is best exemplified in Fauna, which works almost exactly like video game logic. It has stats with numbers that go from I to S that increase when you kill more monsters. And when they're high enough, you can level up to the next level. Along with the normal stats being strength, endurance, and dexterity, there's also developmental abilities, which are Characterizations that specialize in certain areas, such as Belle's Luck and Eyes' Swordsman. Another element that was taken, that was stolen from RPGs is the magic system. There is congenital magic, which is based on one's own ability and race, and acquired magic. Magic based on the fauna, given by the gods and goddesses. Um, this magic uses spell slots, and there are a total of three slots for magic, and people can normally only learn one magic per slot. However, most people tend to have to never have any magic appear. For people with one or two slots, the number can be increased via usage of a grimoire, but the absolute maximum is three. And if you use a grimoire, you can't increase it. Development ability can also be put into your magic to strengthen the power, length of time, amount of targets, and the effect area of magic. Keep in mind though, development abilities happen at level 2, and even if you level up, you don't just get one per level, and a lot of them can appear at one time, and you could have to choose between them. Magic system works in that to use magic, you must consume mind, which is a similar concept to things like mana, which I've seen used more. And overuse of mind can cause an individual to faint in a condition known as mind down or mind zero. So if this was a game, you'd have to be paying attention to how much mind you're using. The most famous case of mind down that I can think of is when Belle was spamming Firebolt in the dungeon and as a result he collapsed, whereupon he was found by Eyes and Reveria, who were just coming back from Eyes defeating the floor boss, Udeos. I don't think I said that right, but that's okay, we're just gonna move on. And Reveria 
recommends that to apologize to Belle, she should give him a lap pillow and look after him while he's asleep from the mind down. She says that no man would ever refuse something from her like that. I think that the current system reminds me most closely of D&D because I don't really play a lot of RPGs on consoles, so I can't really make that comparison. I can only really use tabletops. So in D&D, there are your base stats, intelligence, wisdom, strength, dexterity, charisma, and constitution. We're already seeing some similarities here. And like Don Machi, you can increase these base stats. In Don Machi, it's obviously called basic abilities. The only difference is that this happens every couple of levels, and you would only add a plus one to the modifier. Basically what a modifier is, is that let's say you roll a 16. Based on your level, you would add a certain number to that 16, let's say a three, so 16 plus three, 19. Your final roll would be a 19. And the magic system is very similar to Danmachi in that it also uses spell slots. But there's a much higher amount of spell slots that you can use in D&D. And as far as I can tell, it doesn't seem that you can use a higher spell slot for lower level spells. The closest thing I could find was Bavaria who is a member of the Loki Familia and one of Ize's, I guess, parental figures, like she's her mother figure. Her special technique is known as Chant Connection, which allows her to change the strength of her magic based on the net length and mind usage. That was the closest thing I could find. And like D&D, there's skills for each class. I guess, unlike D&D, Danmachi doesn't have very specific classes besides I, supporters and adventurers. Those are the two groups you can basically divide into. But there's specific classes that have specific skills, like rogues, the sneak attack, where you roll an extra damage when your opponent is distracted or doesn't see you coming. Fighters have the special skill to use a 19 as well as a 20 to deal extra damage. Nat 20s, you can roll again to deal natural damage, basically. Skills, unlike development abilities, can appear no matter the level. And when they appear, the god that gave the adventurer the fauna can decide whether to give the adventurer the skill or not. However, if the skill appears when fauna is given at level one, then it cannot be rejected. Uh, skills can sh correct and strengthen specific base abilities, magic, and actions. 
And skills are rare within the series, unlike I think in video games where it's like every character in your party has a specific skill. And I guess like Pokemon too, because they all have like a specific ability, like Anger Point. Some examples of skills are Bell's Liaris Freeze, which is responsible for his massive growth, and Argonaut, which is a charge for a counterattack, as well as Tione and Tiona's Berserk, which are unique in that they're variations of one another, but they are the same ability. And Machi utilizes are real gods and goddesses, the goddess of Bell, the main character of the entire anime, Hestia, is the Greek goddess of hearth and home. She's one of the original 12 Olympians and the firstborn child of the titans Kronos and Rhea. But because she was also consequently the last one to be wretched up because she was the first eaten of the story, most of you have been in elementary school, I'm hoping? She's also referred to as the youngest of Kronos and Rhea's children. She is characterized as being pure and peaceful. However, because Hestia always stays on Mount Olympus to tend to the fireplace, she isn't involved in many myths, making her role as manager of the hearth both a blessing and a curse. And she's later replaced in the pantheon by the much wilder Dionysus. The name literally translates to hearth or fireplace, and her seat in Mount Olympus shows the significance of the hearth in social and religious life of the people of ancient Greece. The social and religious life of the people of ancient Greece. Making and conserving fire was both essential and difficult for primitive societies, which made the household fire sanctified at a very early age in history, and Hestia became the symbol of this hearth. Hestia is usually portrayed as a modest, middle-aged, veil-wearing woman. Sometimes she's depicted as standing by a large fire, carrying a staff, or grasping flowers in her hands. The epithets that ancient Greeks used for her included beloved and enral and she of the public hearth. Because fire is uncontaminated and a purifying element, Hestia was worshipped as a virgin goddess alongside Artemis and Athena. The myth that goes along to explain this is that she never married to keep the peace, particularly because Apollo and Poseidon wanted to marry her, and if she chose one or the other, she feared the world would devolve into conflict. As reward for keeping the peace and in place of marriage, Zeus granted her the central place in the house and the first and full flavored servings of divine offerings. One of the only stories about Hestia is that during the bucolic feast, the drunken god of fertility, Hippus, attempted to uh, sleep with the sleeping goddess. Yes, I'm going to go with that. Sleep. They were going to cuddle in bed, of course, yes. Yeah. And, oh boy, I forgot to get into skills. I didn't realize what I wrote until I wrote it. Then, a savior appeared. And who was this hero, you may ask? Was he wearing a cape? Could he fly and shoot lasers from his eyes? No. He was a donkey. Who brayed loudly and alerted both Hestia and the guests of Priapus's dastardly snuggling attempt. 
they together chase Priapus out with contempt. Since then, donkeys were rested and garlanded on Hestia's feast day. What's the explanation for that? Hestia's only manifestation among humans is the crackling of fire. Aristotle says that it is the sound of the goddess laughing. Now the next goddess up to bat is Freya, who's a stalking creep in the anime. Freya, or in Old Norse, Freja, meaning lady, is a renowned goddess of Norse mythology. She's a member of the Vanir tribe of deities, one of the two principal tribes featured in Norse mythology, the other being the Iser, who I think we know a bit better. Thank you, Marvel, for popularizing them. And the gods associated with the Vanir are Freya, Freyr, Njord, and arguably the pre-Christian Germanic goddess Nerthus. They live on Vanaheim, which translates in Old Norse roughly to homeland of the Vanir. I'm gonna say this though, even though we use Vanir as a collective term for these deities, there is no evidence pre-Christianization of Vanir ever being used as a term to describe them under one name, basically. But there is evidence in text of Vanaheim, so it's really hard to tell. And Vanaheim is in one of the nine worlds, which are lands home to many old Norse creatures tangled in the branches and roots of the world tree, Yggdrasil. Midgard is the world of humanity, but aside from it, most of these worlds remain invisible, but particular aspects can sometimes manifest in the material world. For example, Jotunheim overlaps with the physical wilderness, hell with the grave, the underworld beneath your feet. Ha ha, funny joke. And Asgard in the sky. And also the Vanir are more associated with eco ecological fertility than the Aizer deities. Freya was brought into the Iser mythology after the Iser Veneer War, which mythology states was caused when Freya introduced the practice of Seder, which is a pre-Christian practice of shamanism and magic, whose moot point is alternating the course of fate by working within its structure, usually depicted as weaving new events into the timeline. It is considered the most terribly powerful kind of magic, to the Iser, at least. Witch's power brought out the greed within the Iser when Freya introduced it to them, and it directly conflicted with their values of honor, kin, loyalty, and adherence with the law. The Iser blamed Freya for their shortcomings, dubbing her Golvig, gold greed, and they tried to murder her by burning her, but it didn't work, and she always rose from the ashes. Because of this, tension became high between the Veneer and the Iser, until the hostilities erupted into war. Both sides, however, were caught in a stalemate, and weary from the fighting, they organized a truce by exchanging hostages, which was common in their society. Freya was one of the hostages that was exchanged, and she was adopted into... Iser Pantheon. I don't think that's what they called it, though. Freya's father is Njord, and her husband is Odin, 
he's called Odor, we can basically assume that he's Odin. Because everything is Odin for some reason. Go watch Overly Sarcastic Productions. Freya was famous for her fondness of love, beauty, and fine material possessions. But she's more than a seeker of passionate thrills. She's the archetype for Volva, seers and sorceresses who practice satyr, who went from town to town exchanging their acts of shamanism for lodging, food, and other such resources. And Freya is credited with bringing satyr to humanity. Her knowledge and power are almost equal, and she presides after a realm of Folkvang. And last, but certainly not least, the final important god to the story is Loki. Loki is the trickster god of Norse mythology. Despite having the status as one of the gods, Loki is a uniquely ambivalent god who constantly switches sides amongst the gods, giants, and other kinds of spiritual beings. This is especially exemplified in that he chooses to side with the giants during Ragnarok. Loki's father is the giant Farpati, or Cruel Striker, I hope I'm saying this right. I probably am not. I'm sorry for all you Norse mythology geeks out there. Please forgive me. I have sinned. And his mother, either Nal or Lafe, is of mysterious origin. We don't have any surviving texts that tell us exactly species she was. Loki is the father of the giantess and Groboda, Hel, the goddess of the underworld, Jormungand, the great serpent who kills Thor during Ragnarok, the cataclysmic destruction of the universe and everything, even the gods, which was foretold. But I'm sure we already know that, as there is a Marvel movie that has grossed a lot of moolah from this event, this apocalypse. And Fenrir, the wolf who will bite off Tyr's hand and murder Odin during the end of the world. Loki's proper wife is Sigyn, friend of victory. He also has a son named Nari or Narfi, which roughly translates to corpse. Hey, dead bodies. Loki is characterized as being a pleasure seeker and concerned only with his self-preservation in many stories. He's a crafty coward who is more likely to rely on tricks than his own might or skill, and who often receives cosmic retribution for his actions. He is also characterized as being not only a breaker of rules, what a bad boy, but also a breaker of the laws of nature. He is the mother, yep, you heard that right, mother of... Okay, let's see how I'm supposed to say this. Slipnish. I don't think I said that right. I think I was supposed to add more, like, throatiness to it. I'm sorry, I can't say words in English correctly. You think I'm going to be able to say things in another language entirely? Who is Odin the shamanic horse? Loki gave birth to him after shape-shifting into a mare and courting the stallion. Okay, here we go again. Ready, round two. Sava de la Fairy. As recounted in The Fortification of Asgard. Loki's role in Ragnarok, besides, you know, being the father to 
the creatures responsible for some of the most powerful gods' demises is his elimination of Baldur. The story goes that after Baldur had a prophetic dream of his own demise, his overprotective mother, don't worry, dear, mommy's got it, made every creature within the Nine Realms swear to never harm a hair on her baby, ever. The only one that didn't sign this oath was Mistletoe. So basically, Baldur was virtually indestructible to everything but Mistletoe. And Loki took advantage of this by crafting a spear out of Mistletoe and just handing it to his blind brother, Hodor, who would then spear him through the chest. Yay, good job, Loki, taking it a bit too far right there. Now, all these gods do not, I think, translate well to the anime. Like, Hestia, I guess, is kind of motherly to Belle, but she's also kind of like a jealous brat when he's around girls. Oh, and speaking of being a jealous brat, she's supposed to be a virgin. I think the author just liked the idea of a character that has sworn herself off of men to be in love with the main character. And because of the fact that her powers are sealed, she can't really use her powers of the hearth. Freya, I think, is the most accurate character within the anime, as she's obsessed with the idea of finding her one true love. And as I've already stated, she is fond of love, beauty, and fine material possessions and passionate thrills. So it makes sense that she'd see Belle as sort of a commodity because of the fact that his soul is pure and transparent. Loki, the way the author translated the fact that Loki is a shapeshifter and I guess therefore his gender isn't very concrete is that he made Loki a female and also obsessed with other females. So Loki's gay, basically, in this. But, I mean, it could also not be serious. It could be a part of the trickster personality, which I don't find very funny, Loki. This is like killing Baldur all over again. But yeah. All right, I think this is where we have to cut things off because I'm at 26 minutes and... That is way too long for a single podcast episode. But do not worry, my dear viewers, for there will be a part two coming out soon. So stay tuned. Bye.